I suppose that most of you heard that yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, where Neil Armstrong stepped out onto the moon for the first time. What could that possibly have to do with Christianity? Well, you'll be surprised. It's there. I'm talking to you for the last year and a half on how to be a spiritual Christian. And, and when events happen, when anything happens, the spiritual person is always looking for what is God doing. And God is always doing something in every event, in every person's life, uh, the, the big and the small. And the moon landing actually was a move of God. Something happened there that was spiritually super significant. So let's talk about Apollo 11 that landed on the moon. Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong. It's Michael Collins. Okay. All right. So the rocket that uh, took off from Earth weighed 6 million pounds and went at top speed 24,000 miles an hour. Just for reference, 65 years before that, when the Wright brothers flew for the first time, their plane weighed 604 pounds and went 30 miles an hour. That's how far we came in 65 years, from the Wright brothers' first airplane to uh, rockets. Six million pound rocket went 24,000 miles an hour, a total of 953,000 miles round trip, for eight days, three hours, 18 minutes, 35 seconds if you care. Three and a half days there, 21 hours on the moon, three and a half days back. At 24,000 miles an hour, it took three and a half days to get to the moon. That means 24,000 miles an hour is you could get all the way around the equator once in an hour. That's fast. <laughs> and it takes three and a half days. So the moon's quite a road trip. Yeah? yeah, the Saturn V rocket that launched that Apollo 11 moon lander had a million spectators in person. A million people went to see it in person take off. 24 million people watched on. They weren't sure if it was going to blow up because one had, actually. It's three, the three men on Apollo 1 died on the landing pad when their rocket blew up. And actually, Neil Armstrong left an Apollo 1 patch on the moon as a memorial to the first three Apollo astronauts who gave their life in search for and effort for space exploration. And so that rocket, if it had blown up, would have blown up to the equivalent of two kilotons of TNT, which comparatively that's about 20% of the atomic bombs that were used in World War II. So it would have been a big explosion. Thank God it did not blow up. It was only the fourth time that particular rocket had been used. There, this is Apollo 11. There were 11 missions to each one going further and doing more until on Apollo 8 is where the astronauts actually got to the moon and orbited it. All the missions before that were tests of the equipment, tests of the procedures, the suits, how to work in gravity, does, you know, all this. And, and so each one went successively further. Each one did successfully, successively more until Apollo 8 got to the moon, but they did not land. They just went around the moon in orbit and more on that later. But Apollo 11 is the one that actually 
touched down. So when that rocket took off, four days later, three and a half days or so, um, the tip of the rocket, which is the the space module, the rest of it falls off because it's only carrying fuel. Got three and a half days later, they got to the moon, and then there was two pieces of that, and the lunar lander separated and went down to the moon and touched down with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin in it. Michael Collins was in the orbiter. He never did get to go on this mission, never did get to go to the moon's surface. He was communication and protection um, up above. The lunar lander landed, and the very famous quote, you know, tranquility here, um, the eagle has landed. And then there was procedures, I don't even know what. Your car from the late 80s had more computers in it than the lunar lander did in 1969. Uh, it was mostly vacuum tubes. There was the very first digital integrated circuits were in the computer of the lunar lander. Um, it would be 10 years before those would be commercially available. It was 1979 before anybody could buy those. And if you remember Commodores and Apple IIEs from the 70s, you know how primitive they were. The computers and procedures on the lunar lander were very, very primitive. A, a, a lot of it was mechanical. And vacuum tube and punch cards had to be inserted into the computers to make them do what they they could do, and it, anyway, it was pretty fascinating stuff. But there was a bunch of procedures, so it actually took two hours for Armstrong to get ready to leave the lander and step out on the moon's surface. And what happened in that two hours is extremely spiritually significant. Um, it's, it's a story that probably some of you know, especially if you saw what I posted on the church Facebook page this week, but some of you may not be familiar with the story. So, so... Armstrong, of course, is famous for being the first man on the moon. Buzz Aldrin also got to be on the moon. He was 19 minutes late, uh, not because not he was late. It was planned ahead of time, but he was 20 minutes later than Armstrong. But Buzz Aldrin was a born-again Christian, an elder in his church. And he asked his pastor, what can I do that is spiritually significant when we land on the moon? And he and his pastor decided that he would take communion. That the elements of the Lord's Supper would be the spiritually significant thing to do when he landed on the moon. So I want to just read to you from this. Uh, Buzz Aldrin, who is actually the namesake of Buzz Lightyear. He is. Uh, Buzz Aldrin tells of the experience for several weeks prior to the scheduled liftoff of Apollo 11 in July of 1969. Uh, my pastor, Dean Woodruff, and I had been struggling to find the right symbol for the first lunar landing. Buzz Aldrin was an elder at Webster Presbyterian Church in uh, Houston, and Pastor Woodruff told him that God reveals himself in the common elements of everyday life, and that would include bread and wine, the elements of the Lord's table, the celebration of Christ's death on behalf of sinners. So the idea of communion on the moon was Aldrin's. He writes, I wondered if it might be possible to take communion on the moon, symbolizing the thought that God was revealing himself there too, as man had reached out into the universe. For there are many of us, gets this sentence, Aldrin speaking, there are many of us in the NASA program who do trust that what we are doing is part of God's eternal plan for man. I spoke with my pastor about the idea and he was enthusiastic. They decided that while Aldrin served himself communion on the moon, his church back home on earth would be participating in communion at roughly the same time, as well as could be determined. 
Aldrin continues, in the radio blackout in the first two hours in the lander, I opened the little plastic packages which contained bread and wine. His church back home had given him a little chalice, and as he poured the wine into the chalice, he notes, in the one-sixth gravity of the moon, wouldn't that be nice to weigh one-sixth of what you do? <laughs> he said, in that one-sixth gravity, you, it's not like outer space, you could actually pour the wine into the cup, but he said that it that it curled slowly and gracefully up the sides of the cup. The Bible passage that Aldrin chose to read were the words of Jesus from John 15, 5. As Neil Armstrong respectfully stood by and watched, Aldrin read, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me. Aldrin added, it was interesting to think that the first, the very first liquid ever poured on the moon, the first food eaten there, were communion elements. NASA broadcast on television everything about the moon landing except that. Because when Apollo 8 had orbited the moon, they took this very famous shot called Earthrise. So they had orbited four times the moon already, but their orbiter had not gone around behind the moon where Earth was not visible. On their fourth trip around, this is Apollo 8, four missions before the moon landing, they knew that they were going to see for the very first time, instead of moonrise or sunrise, from the moon's horizon they would see Earthrise. One of the Apollo 8 astronauts took this photo, and they knew it would be very important to take it in color, although color film wasn't still wasn't that common. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we had color film, but it wasn't. We could go to the moon, but color film was not very common. They knew it would happen, and they planned. The three astronauts of Apollo 8 planned to take this photo, and they would have been in radio silence for I think it was eight minutes as they went behind the surface of the earth and it was the first, uh, sorry, behind the surface of the moon and they had, they did not know, neither the people in Houston nor uh, the moon knew what would happen with the lunar orbiter when it went around out of radio contact. Everybody was very nervous. It was the first time any of the astronauts had ever been out of radio contact but the plan was that it would succeed and that they would snap this photo and then each of the three astronauts would take turns reading one-third of Genesis 1, the creation story. And so they did. Through their lunar radio, back to Houston, it was broadcast across the nation. It was a whole different world. It was broadcast across the nation as our astronauts took this picture and read Genesis 1. One-third each, they took turns reading through the chapter, how God created the earth and the moon and the stars and light and so on. And they were promptly sued. It wasn't all that different of a world. Madeline Murray O'Hare, those of you older than me will recognize that name. Madeline Murray O'Hare sued NASA for endorsing Christianity and the suit went nowhere. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. Every court kept throwing it out. It was a different world. 
uh, every court kept saying we cannot deny the astronauts their right to their own Christianity. And NASA is not endorsing it. They're, they can read whatever they want. So, like I said, it was a different world. That is not the ruling that would be held today. And yes, the next picture is a stamp that came out in uh, the late 1960s that has the picture of that Earthrise. And it says, I'm sorry if you can't read it, but they're in the black and it says, In the beginning, God. The United States government produced a stamp that had a Bible verse on it. And that's the last time. Like I said, it was a different world. So because even though the courts threw the lawsuit out and said it was completely baseless, the astronauts can read scripture if they want, when NASA knew that Buzz Aldrin was going to take communion, this is now back to the lunar landing, uh, a few years later, I think it's two years later and four missions later, they just decided we're, we're not going to broadcast the fact that he's taking communion. We're not going to broadcast his radio transmission of John 15:5. So they didn't. So it's not a very well-known story, but I, I wanted you to know that. In the two hours of preparation, of shutting down the lunar lander and making sure everything was safe and set and the suits were ready to go and all of that, um, one of the very first things that happened once it was mechanically possible, once the machine was set, the very first thing that happened on the moon was communion. That's very spiritually significant. God is on the move. Where humanity went, Jesus went. And the Holy Spirit did something. And Christ was honored. So then Armstrong put on his suit, and it was actually six and a half hours from the landing to when he got out. Uh, it just took that long. I don't know all the procedures and stuff that he had to go through, but six and a half hours later, Armstrong touches down, and he utters his famous line, one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. And 20 minutes later, 19 minutes later, Buzz Aldrin joins him on the moon. They picked up 47 pounds of material. Three new minerals were discovered that don't exist on Earth. They were out for about two and a half hours. The lander was actually on the moon for 21. They were only out of that for two and a half hours. And then uh, they spoke to President Nixon on the phone. Uh, once they got back in the lunar landing on the radio, uh, they spoke to Nixon, and then they returned another three and a half days to Earth. They crash land in the ocean, and they, they went into a 21-day quarantine because scientists weren't sure if they were going to be infected with moon bugs. <laughs> Didn't know what toxic materials or chemicals or atmospheric something or other would be uh, on them, so they actually were in quarantine for 21 days uh, before ticker tape parades and visits to the White House and all the news broadcasts and interviews and, and the wor truly worldwide, it wasn't just a national, but uh, worldwide celebration that that happened. So let's go back one. That's the, that's the picture that is 52, I think, 52 years old uh, from Apollo 8. Numerous sources have said that that is the most influential photograph ever taken possibly the most important photograph in world history just because it is so unique such an impossible perspective such a new and paradigm changing perspective to look at earth from the moon i want you to notice just the void of black all around that sphere of color 
One of the astronauts on Apollo 8 said that that was the most striking thing, that when they were on the backside of the moon, and that's not the Pink Floyd album, but they were, when they were back on the dark side of the moon, everything was black and gray, and there was lights of stars, but there was no color at all. And then to see, as they came around the horizon of the moon, to see the earth. And he said this, the most striking thing was the color and the light that was on the earth that was nowhere else. It was Christmas. And... Uh, the astronauts said, uh, Merry Christmas to all you back on the earth, the good earth. Um, because they were so struck with the complete uniqueness of the earth in the vastness of outer space. That dot there in the lower right is earth from Saturn. The further out you go, Saturn is about six or seven planets out from the sun, uh, the further out you go, of course, the tinier Earth gets. And then the next one shows some Hubble telescope view of the universe. By the naked eye, I am told that that square is less than one centimeter, one square centimeter to our naked eye, and that to our naked eye, it looks like there's nothing there. But the Hubble telescope, which orbits out in outside the light atmosphere of Earth and can take much clearer photos and see much further, that's what's actually there. Outer space is absolutely full of creation. There's nothing empty anywhere. But each one of those brighter dots, the bigger spots of light, is a galaxy that's billions of stars like our sun and so the size of that, the magnitude of the distance in that photo is literally just incomprehensible. And somewhere in there, next photo, somewhere out in there, <laughs> in one of those galaxies, we can't see our own galaxy, so that's not a photo of the Milky Way, because we can't get outside our own Milky Way to take a picture of it. But this is, what, this is a galaxy that looks like our Milky Way. Somewhere in there is an indiscernible dot that is Earth orbiting around the sun, which in that photo you couldn't even see individually by itself. Next photo is so small, I'm sorry, you probably can't even see it if you're not in the first few rows. But this photo is called the pale blue dot. Voyager is a satellite that we launched when it was at its furthermost, furthest most reaches of radio transmission to transmit back photos. It took this picture of Earth, and I'm really sorry that it's so dark you can't even see. It's called the pale blue dot. There is the tiniest little, tiny, tiny microscopic dot of blue in this vastness of space that that photo is wider than Pluto's orbit, the furthest from our sun. You can't, the, the, the photo is so far you can't even see our sun. And there is Earth. But in the blackness of space, here is this one pale blue dot. And on that tiniest little pale blue dot is us. And we think the earth is big. We are tiny. We are absolutely microscopic. Isaiah 45, 12. With my hands I stretched out the heavens. 
all the stars are at my command. That's a lot. That's a lot. Isaiah 40, 12 to 15. Who else has held the ocean in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth? Who has weighed the mountains and the hills on a scale? Who is able to advise the Spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right and show him the path of justice? No, for all the nations of the world are but a drop in a bucket. There's nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. Because it is. It is. By our own perspective, we can see that it's a grain of sand. Imagine God's perspective. He picks up the earth with his hand as though it were a grain of sand. Isaiah 40, 15. Psalm 102, 18 to 22. Let this be written for a future generation, that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary. From heaven, he viewed the earth. From heaven, he viewed the earth. Do you see how tiny the earth looks from heaven. Okay, continuing on, Psalm 102. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to release those condemned to death so that the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. God is so good that he would care what happens on this pale blue dot? Do you see in the photo from the moon, looking at the earth, it's all surrounded by lifeless blackness. And here is color and life and atmosphere. All of God's love and attention is focused on us. On this planet, this earth, these microscopic, terribly rebellious little creatures. And God loves us and takes care of us. Even though in the mathematical scale of things, we are completely inconsequential and invisible. God is so good to us. He looks down from heaven. He views the earth from his sanctuary so that he can set us free. Psalm 102. Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the uttermost heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the morning and I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Psalm 139. If I go to the uttermost, furthest heaven, there is God. But we can't. We're stuck on this ball. So what does God do? He comes here to join us. He becomes one of us. Microscopic, inconsequential, tiniest little nothings. He becomes one of us. Because they're helpless. They're lost. They're trapped. And I love them. And I will not leave them alone. The word spirit means 
breath or wind or air. God has literally wrapped our home planet in his spirit so that we won't die. Because anywhere else we would die. We are just the fact that we are breathing proves God's love and attention. In fact, all of the other stars and planets that we know of, their atmosphere is what the Bible describes as hell. Venus and Jupiter and Saturn are storms of sulfuric acid and methane. We couldn't breathe on any other planet. It's dead and it's fire, liquid fire. It's just death out there for us, but God has wrapped us in his protection to keep us alive, to love us, to provide what we need on this tiniest little home that we ride through his creation. And we thought going to the moon was a long ways. <laughs> we thought it was a big deal. Psalm 102. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they, meaning the heavens, will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. David, writing Psalm 102 here, says that the stars, the planets, the universes, the galaxies, they will grow old, and God will change them. He will recreate them. It's a fascinating idea that we find three times in Scripture. Isaiah prophesies the same thing in chapter 34. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down. The host is the stars. All the hosts shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. I don't know how figs fall from a fig tree. I know that they wait till they're ripened and then they beat the tree and the fruit falls off. We can't do that with peaches and cherries, but I guess figs are hard enough. You can do that with them. And nuts, I know that's not how they harvest nuts. In western Oregon, you just vibrate the tree to death and then all the nuts fall. Isaiah says, the stars will fall out of the sky like figs falling out of a tree, like leaves in the fall fall off the branch. And then in Revelation, John sees that happen. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the mighty men, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? I don't want to be in that group. The Bible tells us three different times, David and Isaiah and John all prophesied that God showed them that at some point there is going to be utter cataclysm. The universe is going to collapse. Time is up. The good news is that Jesus will be here on the earth when that happens. And if you are in him, you will be with him. And we have nothing to fear. But the God who created it all with his fingers... The Bible says he literally individually placed every star and he named every star. The God who created it 
is going to wipe it away and start over. With his son on the throne and a new creation, the earth will be made new, the universe will be made new, it even says heaven will be made new. There is coming a terrible, complete, cataclysmic collapse of everything. It's very soon. Yeah, yeah, I know, Mitch. The Bible said that 2,000 years ago. It's coming very soon. Very soon. Are you ready? The universe is immeasurably big. We don't have numbers or words large enough to communicate how big God's creation is. And God says, with my fingers, I'm going to brush it all away. That's a God you cannot resist. How about we say yes to him now? Trust that he loves us so much that all of his attention and affection and love and power are focused on that pale blue dot. Because the creatures that have his heart live there. And I don't want any of them destroyed when all that happens. So the invitation is, come to me now. Every knee will bow, bow yours now. Don't wait for him to force it. Bow your knee now. Say yes to Jesus. Come into his kingdom now, and we have nothing to fear. Paul says, even though the mountains be pulled up and thrown into the sea, that's a big earthquake. That's a really big cataclysm. We can see the evidence of cataclysm all around us. We live in a hole in the middle of a cataclysm that happened a long time ago. Mount Emily is the very end of a lava flow that came from central Washington. The Wallawas came up out of the earth in a matter of moments, minutes. The entire Wallawa mountain range just came up out of the earth. We live in the, in the evidence of terrible destruction and cataclysm. The Bible promises that's nothing compared to what's coming. It has happened before, and God says, the fools say it won't happen again. Life will go on as it always has. We're living in proof that it has not always been like it is now. And the Bible promises it will not always be like it is now. Come to Jesus now. Say yes to him. Turn from whatever way you have chosen and choose his way. Because the sky is going to be rolled back like a scroll, whatever that means. The stars will fall out of the sky, whatever that means. When Jesus returns, big things will happen. I believe it. I know that makes me a fool. But I believe it. That it's real. It's really coming. That God is that big, that he has that much control, and also that that picture right there is one of the proofs of his love. The complete cosmic uniqueness of this place. The focus of his love and attention and all of his efforts that he would become a human to live with us on that tiniest speck of dust that we ride through the universe shows his humility, his desperation for us not to die or be destroyed or separated from him for all of eternity. He loves us so much, and he is so good.
He is patiently waiting for you to say yes to him today, if you have not already. If you need to get right with Jesus, do it. God's patience is his warning. Don't take advantage of it. Lord, thank you for the beauty of your creation, for the glory of what you have displayed in the sky, your display of your power and your size and your strength and your imagination, the power of your words of creation, Lord. Thank you that you have not left us without signs, that you say you will put signs in the heavens above. And we see them, Lord. We see the magnitude and the mathematic perfection of your creation, that it must have been designed. It didn't happen by accident. It didn't evolve by chance. You put it there on purpose to display your size and your glory and your beauty, your intelligence, your imagination, your creativity. We praise you and we give you glory for the greatness, for the magnitude, your power, your creative power. We recognize that we are tiny. We are inconsequential before you. You say that we are but dust, but that you love us. With all of your heart of fire, you love us. With a great and unstoppable, unfailing love. Thank you. Thank you for your protection, for your love, for your hand of provision. Thank you that you did not leave us alone. Lost, aimlessly riding through the universe. But you taught us who you are. You revealed yourself to us. You gave us your word. You gave us your commands. You gave us your prophecy. You explained what is coming, what you are now doing, and what you will do. And we say yes to your word. We say yes to your prophecy. We say yes to your promises. We say yes to you, Lord Jesus. We believe that you are God who took on flesh and came to this tiny inconsequential speck in the universe. You who hold the galaxies in your hand became like one of us, made of dust, able to die in a fragile body. You were crucified, and God of the universe gave his life, for you are unstoppable and you cannot fail. We believe that you rose from the grave and that you are on high and that you are returning. Lord, and the consequences of sin are cataclysmic, that the rebellion of men and angels will destroy the universe, but that we are secretly hidden under the shadow of your wing, that you hide us as in a pavilion, Lord, under your hand. Thank you that we have nothing to fear if we have bowed our knee to you. If we have said yes, if we have come into Christ, into your kingdom, there is nothing to fear, even though the mountains be pulled up and thrown into the sea. A yes to you this morning, Jesus. Yes. Whatever you need to say yes to Jesus for, say it right now. Just say yes. Whatever he's leading you to do, whatever he is saying in your heart, say yes. He's good. He is good. Trust Him, obey Him, and watch Him work it out. He knows a little bit more than we do. He's a little bigger and a little older. Trust Him. Trust Him. 
Obey him. Serve him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. We praise your holy name this morning. We bless your holy name. Amen.